This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones. They have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included, and there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. A podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. I have got a wonderful, snoozy bedtime story for you tonight. But before we get to tonight's reading, I just want to thank all of our patrons on Patreon.com. Jamie Richards, Kaya Campy, Mark Ponder, Sarah Mott, and Shan Nokolai. Thank you all so, so much for being patrons of the Sleepy Podcast and being a part of making the show. And, um, if you, too, listening, would like to be a patron of Sleepy, then just go to patreon.com slash sleepyradio and donate even a dollar a month. It goes a really long way. At $5 a month, you get some extra perks, but no matter how much you donate, I will read your name in the opening credits of the next show after you do. So, if you would like to be a part of making the show, like all these wonderful names that I just read, then just go to patreon.com slash sleepy radio. Thank you. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski, and the cover up for Sleepy is by Gracie Kana. Well, tonight I'm going to be reading a classic that actually just entered the public domain this past year. And has been requested by a few listeners. Um, it is Aerosmith by Sinclair Lewis. It's really a wonderfully written story. Um, but it moves slowly enough in the beginning where 
it's actually really great to doze off to. And hopefully I read it soothingly enough for you to do that. And uh, just as a side note, it's uh, the first snow in Vermont tonight, which is pretty crazy. Um, the only reason I say that is because there is a wonderful pitter-patter of melting snow outside the window. It's uh, putting me to sleep while I'm reading. And if you hear that during the reading, just know it is a little bit of light snow melting. And that's a really nice accompaniment to this reading. Okay. So without further ado, Aerosmith by Sinclair Lewis. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes and let me read to you. Chapter One The driver of the wagon swaying through forest and swamp of the Ohio wilderness was a ragged girl of fourteen. Her mother they had buried near the Monongahela. The girl herself had heaped with torn sods the grave beside the river of the beautiful name. Her father lay shrinking with fever on the floor of the wagon box, and about him played her brothers and sisters, dirty brats, tattered brats, hilarious brats. She halted at the fork in the grassy road, and the sick man quavered, Emmy, you better turn round down toward Cincinnati. If we could find your Uncle Ed, I guess he'd take us in. Nobody ain't going to take us in, she said. We're going on just long as we can. Going west. There's a whole lot of new things I aim to be seeing. She cooked the supper. She put the children to bed and sat by the fire alone. That was the great-grandmother of Martin Aerosmith. Cross-legged in the examining chair in Doc Vickerson's office, a boy was reading Grey's Anatomy. His name was Martin Aerosmith of Elk Mills in the state of Winnemac. There was a suspicion in Elk Mills. Now, in 1897, a dowdy red brick village, smelling of apples, that this brown leather adjustable seat which Doc Vickerson used for minor operations, for the infrequent pulling of teeth, and for highly frequent naps, had begun life as a barber's chair. There was also a belief that its proprietor must once have been called Dr. Vickerson, but for years he had been only the Doc, and he was scurfier and much less adjustable than the chair. 
Martin was the son of J.J. Aerosmith, who conducted the New York Clothing Bazaar. By sheer brass and obstinacy, he had, at 14, become the unofficial, also decidedly unpaid, assistant to the dock. And while the dock was on a country call, he took charge. Though, what there was to take charge of, no one could ever make out. He was a slender boy, not very tall. His hair and restless eyes were black, his skin unusually white, and the contrast gave him an air of passionate variability. The squareness of his head and a reasonable breadth of shoulder saved him from any appearance of effeminacy or of that querulous timidity which artistic young gentlemen call sensitiveness. When he lifted his head to listen, his right eyebrow, slightly higher than the left, rose and quivered in his characteristic expression of energy, of independence, and a hint that he could fight, a look of impertinent inquiry, which had been known to annoy his teachers and the Sunday school superintendent. Martin was like most inhabitants of Elk Mills before the Slavo-Italian immigration, a typical purebred Anglo-Saxon American, which means that he was a union of German, French, Scotch, Irish, perhaps a little Spanish, conceivably a little of the strains lumped together as Jewish, and a great deal of English, which is itself a combination of primitive Britain, Celt, Phoenician, Roman, German, Dane, and Swede. It is not certain that, in attaching himself to Doc Vickerson, Martin was entirely and edifyingly controlled by a desire to become a great healer. He did awe his gang by bandaging stone bruises dissecting squirrels and explaining the astounding and secret matters to be discovered at the back of the physiology. But he was not completely free from an ambition to command such glory among them as was enjoyed by the son of an Episcopalian minister who could smoke an entire cigar without becoming sick. Yet this afternoon, he read steadily at the section on the lymphatic system, and he muttered the long and perfectly incomprehensible words in a hum which made drowsier the dusty room. It was the central room of the three, occupied by Doc Vickerson, facing on Main Street above the New York Clothing Bazaar. On one side of it, was the foul waiting room, on the other the doc's bedroom. He was an aged widower. For what he called female fixings, he cared nothing. And the bedroom, with its tottering bureau and its cot of frowsy blankets, was cleaned only by Martin and not very frequent attacks of sanitation. The central room was at once business office, consultation room, 
operating theater, living room, poker den, and warehouse for guns and fishing tackle. Against a brown plaster wall was a cabinet of zoological collections and medical curiosities, and beside it, the most dreadful and fascinating object known to the boy world of Elk Mills, a skeleton with one gaunt gold tooth. On evenings when the doc was away, Martin would acquire prestige among the trembling gang by leading them into the unutterable darkness and scratching a sulfur match on the skeleton's jaw. On the wall was a home-stuffed pickerel on a home-varnished board. A sawdust box cuspidor rested on a slimy oilcloth worn to the threads. On the senile table was a pile of memoranda of debts which the doc was always swearing he would collect from those deadbeats right now and which he would never by any chance at any time collect from any of them. A year or two, a decade or two, a century or two, they were all the same to the plotting doctor in the bee-murmuring town. The most unsanitary corner was devoted to the cast-iron sink, which was oftener used for washing eggy breakfast plates than for sterilizing instruments. On its ledge were a broken test tube, a broken fish hook, an unlabeled and forgotten bottle of pills, a nail bristling heel, a frayed cigar butt, and a rusty lancet stuck in a potato. The wild raggedness of the room was the soul and symbol of Doc Vickerson. It was more exciting than the flat-faced stack of shoeboxes in the New York Bazaar. It was the lure to questioning an adventure for Martin Aerosmith. The boy raised his head, cocked his inquisitive brow. On the stairway was the cumbersome step of Doc Vickerson. The Doc was sober. Martin would not have to help him into bed. But it was a bad sign that the doc should first go down the hall to his bedroom. The boy listened sharply. He heard the doc open the lower part of the washstand where he kept his bottle of Jamaica rum. After a long gurgle, the invisible doc put away the bottle and decisively kicked the door shut. Still good. Only one drink. If he came into the consultation room at once, he would be safe. But he was still standing in the bedroom. Martin sighed as the washstand doors were hastily opened again, as he heard another gurgle, and a third. The doc's step was much livelier when he loomed into the office, a gray mass of a man with a gray mass of a mustache, 
a form vast and unreal and undefined, like a cloud taking for the moment a likeness of humanity. With the brisk attack of one who wishes to escape the discussion of his guilt, the dock rumbled while he waddled toward his desk chair. What you doing here, young fellow? What you doing here? I knew the cat would drag in something if I left the door unlocked. He gulped slightly. He smiled to show that he was being humorous. People had been known to misconstrue the doc's humor. He spoke more seriously, occasionally forgetting what he was talking about. Reading Old Grey? That's right. Physician's Library, just three books. Grey's Anatomy, and Bible, and Shakespeare. Study. You may become great doctor. Locate in Zenith, and make $5,000 a year. Much as United States Senator. Set a high goal. Don't let things slide. Get training. Go college before medical school. Study. Chemistry, Latin, knowledge. I'm plugged up, got chick nor child, nobody, old drunk. But you, leading physician, make $5,000 a year. Murray woman's got endocarditis. Not a thing I can do for her. Want somebody to hold her hand. Rose damn disgrace. Culvert's out, beyond the grove. Disgrace. Endocarditis and training. That's what you gotta get. Fundamentals. No chemistry. Biology. I never did. Mrs. Reverend Jones thinks she's got gastric ulcer. Wants to go to city for operation. Ulcer. Hell. She and the Reverend both eat too much. Why they don't repair that culvert? And don't be a booze hoister like me, either. And get your basic science. I'll spine. The boy, normal village youngster though he was, given to stoning cats and to playing pom-pom poloi, gained something of the intoxication of treasure hunting as the doc struggled to convey his vision of the pride of learning, the universality of biology, the triumphant exactness of chemistry. A fat old man, and dirty and unvirtuous was the doc. His grammar was doubtful, his vocabulary alarming, and his references to his rival, good Dr. Needham, were scandalous. Yet he invoked in Martin a vision of making chemicals explode with much noise and stink and of seeing animalcules that no boy in Elk Mills had ever beheld. The doc's voice was thickening. He was sunk in his chair, blurry of eye and lax of mouth. Martin begged him to go to bed, but the doc insisted. Don't need now. No. Now you listen. You don't appreciate, but Old man now, giving you all I've learned, 
Shoyu Collection, only museum in the whole country, scientific pioneer. A hundred times had Martin obediently looked at the specimens in the brown, crackly, varnished bookcase, the beetles and chunks of mica, the embryo of a two-headed calf, the gallstones removed from a respectable lady whom the doc enthusiastically named to all visitors. The doc stood before the case, waving an enormous but shaky forefinger. Look at that butterfly. Name is Porthesia chrysoria. Doc Needham couldn't tell you that. He don't know what butterflies are called. He don't care if you get trained. Remember that name now? He turned on Martin. You paying attention? You interested? Huh? Oh, the devil. Nobody wants to know about my museum. Not a person. Only one in county, but I'm an old failure. Martin asserted, honest, but slick. Look here, look here. See that in the bottle? It's an appendix. First one ever took out around here. I did it. Old Doc Vickerson. He did the first appendectomy in this neck of the woods, you bet. And first museum. It ain't so big, but it's a start. Haven't put away money like Doc Needham, but I started first collection. I started it. He collapsed in a chair, groaning. You're right. Got to sleep, all in. But as Martin helped him to his feet, he broke away, scrabbled about on his desk, and looked back doubtfully. Want to give you something. Start your training. And remember the old man. Will anybody remember the old man? He was holding out the beloved magnifying glass, which for years he had used in botanizing. He watched Martin slip the lens into his pocket. He sighed. He struggled for something else to say. And silently, he lumbered into his bedroom. Chapter 2 The state of Winnemag is bounded by Michigan, Ohio, Illinois, and Indiana. And like them, it is half eastern, half midwestern. There is a feeling of New England and its brick and sycamore villages, its stable industries, and a tradition which goes back to the Revolutionary War. Zenith, the largest city in the state, was founded in 1792. But Winnemac is Midwestern in its fields of corn and wheat, its red barns and silos, and, despite the immense antiquity of Zenith, many counties were not settled till 1860. The University of Winnemac is at Mohalas, 15 miles from Zenith. There are 12,000 students, 
beside this prodigy, Oxford is a tiny theological school and Harvard a select college for young gentlemen. The university has a baseball field under glass. Its buildings are measured by the mile. It hires hundreds of young doctors of philosophy to give rapid instruction in Sanskrit, navigation, accountancy, spectacle fitting, sanitary engineering, provincial poetry, tariff schedules, rutabaga growing, motor car designing, the history of Orneza, the style of Matthew Arnold, the diagnosis of myohypertrophia chymoparalytica, and department store advertising. Its president is the best money raiser and the best after-dinner speaker in the United States. And Winnemac was the first school in the world to conduct its extension courses by radio. It is not a snobbish rich man's college devoted to leisurely nonsense. It is the property of the people of the state and what they want or what they are told they want is a mill to turn out men and women who will lead moral lives, play bridge, drive good cars, be enterprising in business, and occasionally mention books, though they are not expected to have time to read them. It is a Ford Motor Factory, and if its products rattle a little, they are beautifully standardized with perfectly interchangeable parts. Hourly, the University of Winnemac grows in numbers and influence, and by 1950, one may expect it to have created an entirely new world civilization, a civilization larger and brisker and purer. In 1904, when Martin Aerosmith was an arts and science junior preparing for medical school, Winnemac had but 5,000 students, yet it was already brisk. Martin was 21. He still seemed pale, in contrast to his black, smooth hair. But he was a respectable runner, a fair basketball center, and a savage hockey player. The co-eds murmured that he looked so romantic. But as this was before the invention of sex and the era of petting parties, they merely talked about him at a distance, and he did not know that he could have been a hero of Amorous. For all his stubbornness, he was shy. He was not entirely ignorant of caresses, but he did not make an occupation of them. He consorted with men whose virile pride it was to smoke filthy corncob pipes and wear filthy sweaters. The university had become his world. For him, Elk Mills did not exist. Doc Vickerson was dead and buried and forgotten. Martin's father and mother were dead, leaving him only enough money for his arts and medical courses. The purpose of life was chemistry and physics and the prospect of biology next year. 
His idol was Professor Edward Edwards, head of the Department of Chemistry, who was universally known as Encore. Edwards' knowledge of the history of chemistry was immense. He could read Arabic, and he infuriated his fellow chemists by asserting that the Arabs had anticipated all their researches. Himself, Professor Edwards never did researches. He sat before fires and stroked his collie and chuckled in his beard. This evening, Encore was giving one of his small and popular at-homes. He lolled in a brown corduroy Morris chair, being quietly humorous for the benefit of Martin and half a dozen other fanatical young chemists, and baiting Dr. Norman Brumfit, the instructor in English. The room was full of hardiness and beer and Brumfit. Every university faculty must have a wild man to provide thrills into shot-crowded lecture rooms. Even in so energetically virtuous an institution as Winnemac, there was one wild man, and he was Norman Brumfit. He was permitted, without restriction, to speak of himself as immoral, agnostic, and socialistic, so long as it was universally known that he remained pure, Presbyterian, and Republican. Dr. Brumfit was informed tonight. Like all discussions of Judaism at Winnemac, this led to the mention of Max Gottlieb, professor of bacteriology in the medical school. Professor Gottlieb was the mystery of the university. It was known that he was Jewish, born and educated in Germany, and that his work on immunology had given him fame in the East and in Europe. He rarely left his small, brown, weedy house, except to return to his laboratory, and few students outside of his classes had ever identified him. But everyone had heard of his tall, lean, dark aloofness. A thousand fables fluttered about him. It was believed that he was the son of a German prince, that he had immense wealth, that he lived as sparsely as the other professors only because he was doing terrifying and costly experiments which probably had something to do with human sacrifice. It was said that he could create life in the laboratory, that he could talk to the monkeys which he inoculated, that he had been driven out of Germany as a devil worshipper or an anarchist, and that he secretly drank real champagne every evening at dinner. It was the tradition that faculty members did not discuss their colleagues with students, but Max Gottlieb could not be regarded as anybody's colleague. He was impersonal as the chill northeast wind. Dr. Brumfit rattled. I'm sufficiently liberal, I should assume, toward the claims of science, but with a man like Gottlieb, I am prepared to believe that he knows all about material forces. What astounds me 
is that such a man can be blind to the vital force that creates all others. He says that knowledge is worthless unless it is proven by rows of figures. Well, when one of you scientific sharks can take the genius of a Ben Johnson and measure it with a yardstick, then I'll admit that we literary chaps with our doubtless absurd belief in beauty and loyalty and the world of dreams are off on the wrong track. Marinero Smith was not exactly certain what this meant, and he enthusiastically did not care. He was relieved when Professor Edwards, from the midst of his beardedness and smokiness, made a sound curiously like, Oh, hell and took the conversation away from Brumfett. Ordinarily, Honcor would have suggested, with amiable malice, that Gottlieb was a crepe-hanger, who wasted time destroying the theories of other men instead of making new ones of his own. But tonight, in detestation of such literary playboys as Brumfett, he exalted Gottlieb's long, lonely, failure-burden effort to synthesize antitoxin and his diabolic pleasure in disproving his own contentions as he would those of Ehrlich or Sir Amroth Wright. He spoke of Gottlieb's great book, Immunology, which had been read by seven-ninths of all the men in the world who could possibly understand it, the number of these being the party ended with Mrs. Edwards' celebrated donuts. Martin tramped towards his boarding house through a veiled spring night. The discussion of Gottlieb had roused him to a reasonless excitement. He thought of working in a laboratory at night, alone, absorbed contemptuous of academic success and of popular classes. Himself, he believed, he had never seen the man, but he knew that Gottlieb's laboratory was in the main medical building. He drifted toward the distant medical campus. The few people whom he met were hurrying with midnight timidity. He entered the shadow of the anatomy building, grim as a barracks. Beyond that was the turreted bulk of the main medical building, a harsh and blurry mass, high up in its dark wall, a single light. He started. The light had gone out abruptly, as though an agitated watcher were trying to hide from him. On the stone steps of the main medical, two minutes later, appeared beneath the arc light a tall figure, ascetic, self-contained, apart. His swart cheeks were gone, his nose high-bridged and thin. He did not hurry, like the belated homebodies. He was unconscious of the world. He looked at Martin and through him. He moved away, muttering to himself. His shoulders stooped, his long hands clasped behind him, 
he was lost in the shadows, himself a shadow. He had warned the threadbare Tauco of a poor professor, yet Martin remembered him as wrapped in a black velvet cape with a silver star, arrogant on his breast. On his first day in medical school, Martin Aerosmith was in a high state of superiority. As a medic, he was more picturesque than other students, for medics are reputed to know secrets, horrors, exhilarating wickedness. Men from the other departments go to their rooms to peer into their books, but also as an academic graduate with a training in the basic sciences, he felt superior to his fellow medics, most of whom had but a high school diploma, with perhaps one year in a ten-room Lutheran college among the cornfields. For all his pride, Martin was nervous. He thought of operating, of making a murderous, wrong decision, and with a more immediate, macabre fear, he thought of the dissecting room and the stony, steely anatomy building. There was a prairie freshness in the autumn day, but Martin did not heed. He hurried into the slate-colored hall of the main medical, up the wide stairs to the office of Max Gottlieb. He did not look at passing students, and when he bumped into them, he grunted in confused apology. It was a portentous hour. He was going to specialize in bacteriology. He was going to discover enchanting new germs. Professor Gottlieb was going to recognize him as a genius, making him an assistant, predict for him. He halted in Gottlieb's laboratory, a small, tidy apartment with racks of cotton cork test tubes on the bench, a place unimpressive and unmagical, save for the constant temperature bath with its tricky thermometer and electric bulbs. He waited till another student, a stuttering gawk of a student, had finished talking to Gottlieb, dark, lean, impassive at his desk in a cubbyhole of an office. Then he plunged. If in the misty April night Gottlieb had been romantic as a clogged horseman, he was now testy and middle-aged. Near at hand, Martin could see wrinkles beside the Hawkeyes. Gottlieb had turned back to his desk, which was heaped with shabby notebooks, sheets of calculations, and a marvelously precise chart with red and green curves descending to vanish at zero. The calculations were delicate, minute, exquisitely clear and delicate were the scientist's thin hands among the papers. He looked up, spoke with a hint of a German accent. His words were not so much mispronounced as colored with a warm, unfamiliar tint. Well, yes. Oh, Professor Gottlieb, my name is Aerosmith. 
I'm a medic, freshman, with a Mac BA. I'd like awfully to take bacteriology this fall instead of next year. I've had a lot of chemistry. No, it is not time for you. Honest, I know I could do it now. There are two kinds of students the gods give me. One kind they dump on me like a bushel of potatoes. I do not like potatoes. And the potatoes, they do not ever seem to have great affection for me. But I take them and teach them. The other kind, they are very few. They seem for some reason that it is not all clear to me to wish a little bit to become scientists to work with bugs and make mistakes. Those, ah, those. I seize them. I denounce them. I teach them right away the ultimate lesson of science, which is to wait and doubt. Of the potatoes, I demand nothing. Of the foolish ones, like you, who think I could teach them something, I demand everything. No. You are too young. Come back next year. But honestly, with my chemistry, have you taken physical chemistry? No, sir, but I did pretty well in organic. Organic chemistry, puzzle chemistry, stink chemistry, drugstore chemistry. Physical chemistry is power. It is exactness. It is life. But organic chemistry, that is a trade for pot washers. No, you are too young. Come back in a year. Gottlieb was absolute. His talon fingers waved Martin to the door, and the boy hastened out, not daring to argue. He slunk off in misery. On the campus, he met that jovial historian of chemistry, Encore Edwards, and begged, Say, Professor, tell me, is there any value for a doctor in organic chemistry? Value. Why, it seeks the drugs that allay pain. It produces the paint that slicks up your house. It dyes your sweetheart's dress and maybe, in these degenerate days, her cherry lips. Who the dickens has been talking scandal about my organic chemistry? Nobody. I was just wondering, Martin complained. And he drifted to the college inn where, in an injured and melancholy manner, he devoured an enormous banana split and a bar of almond chocolate as he meditated. I want to take bacteriology. I want to get down to the bottom of this disease stuff. I'll learn some physical chemistry. I'll show a Gottlieb. Damn him. Someday I'll discover the germ of cancer or something, and then he'll look foolish in the face. Oh, Lord. I hope I won't take say. First time I go into the dissecting room. I want to take bacteriology. Now.
He recalled Gottlieb's sardonic face. He felt and feared his quality of dynamic hatred. Then he remembered the wrinkles, and he saw Max Gottlieb not as a genius, but as a man who had headaches, who became agonizingly tired, who could be loved. I wonder if Encore Edwards knows as much as I thought he did. What is truth? He puzzled. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.